Pastor Steve, and thank you, Cornerstone, for this opportunity to be with you today to share from God's Word. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 4, the Gospel of John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through, through 26 this morning. We're going to enter into a conversation that Jesus had with the woman of Samaria. This conversation took place on the outskirts of her hometown at a place called Jacob's Well. And uh, Jesus met her there and conversed with her, a woman who was morally and sexually broken. Uh, broken, no doubt, because of the men who had abused her, and no doubt also because of the sin that she had willfully committed on her own. And in verse 19, the conversation begins uh, with a a statement that she makes uh, once Jesus has spoken to her. John chapter 4. Again, I thank you for the opportunity of being here. I understand that, was Dwayne Klein here last Sunday morning? Have you recuperated from Dwayne? Um, Uh, Dwayne and I, of course, uh, pastored together in, in Hamilton in two different churches, and uh, Dwayne stepped down from the ministry at, uh, at uh, James North Baptist Church, I think having been there about 28 years. He now worships at our church in, Ham- in Hamilton, and uh, he's been a dear, dear brother over the years, and I thank God for his fellowship in the gospel, as long as the partnership that we have with you and your pastors here. John chapter 4 verse 19, Jesus talks to the woman, reveals to her that she's already had four or five men before the one she's with now. And look at what she says. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the right place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now, she doesn't ask Jesus a question in verse 20. But the statement she makes is sort of a question implied. Our fathers, that is, the Samaritans, we worshipped on this mountain, which was called Gerizim. But you Jews, you claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, she's not getting away from Jesus and the uncomfortable conversation that he had with her. She actually is engaging further in an uncomfortable conversation. Because she understands that, yes, I am morally and a sexually broken woman. I am a sinful woman. She understands that that in, in, in order for this issue to be dealt with in her life, there has to be some kind of connection with God. 
that, I, that, that only God can ultimately deal with the brokenness of my heart. And so she wants to know what is the, the right place of worship. Her, her, her concern is the where of worship. But Jesus doesn't go there. Jesus focuses instead on the who of worship, the Father, that God is spirit, and more importantly, on the how of worship, that worship must be done in spirit and in truth. And in the few verses that I read to you today, the word worship or a derivative of worship is used ten times. This is the most definitive and clearest teaching that we have in all of the New Testament on worship. I want to make three observations about what happens here before we get into discovering what Jesus means by the how of worship in spirit and in truth. The first thing I want to observe here is the importance of true worship. Now, Jesus says that essentially in verse 23. He said, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers now, when, when, when Jesus uses that phrase, He makes it very, very clear to us that God, the Father, is not indifferent as to how we worship. If there is true worship, then that means there is also false worship. If there is true worship, that means some worship is good and other worship is bad. Some worship is acceptable to God, and other worship is not acceptable to Him. And the Bible sort of begins with this very theme, because after Adam and Eve fall into sin, we read of the next generation, Cain and Abel, their two sons, and Cain and Abel come before God to worship God, but Abel's worship is not accepted. Did I say Abel? I meant Cain. Cain's worship is not accepted. But Abel's is. And so we see right, right in the beginning in Genesis that, that the, the first division of the human race is not along the lines of race or ethnicity. The first division is worship. That humanity is, is divided by, by who worships the one true and living God in an acceptable way and people who worship but not in an accept, acceptable way. This, this whole idea of true worship is one of the themes that comes out as we read the Gospels through. Uh, Jesus, uh, in, in conversation with the, with the Jews in Mark chapter 7, and frustrated as he was with, with how they responded to him and, and did not want to accept him, he, said these, he quoted from Isaiah and said, these people honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. Their worship is in vain. And so it's very, very important that we understand what true worship really is. The importance of true worship. Secondly, the second observation I would make is that, is that true worship is actually the result of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And, and he says that in verse 21 and verse 23. Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come which reminds us of that wonderful verse in Galatians where God says, in the fullness of time, when the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son at the right time. A time is coming and has now come. True worship is the result of Christ coming into the world. 
that true worship happens because Christ has come into the world. That we can now worship in spirit and in truth because Christ has come into the world. The death and the resurrection of Jesus are are therefore a turning point in the history of worship. It's a watershed moment. It's through the death of Christ that our hearts are changed. And that produces true worship. Observation number three. True worship is the fruit of God's grace. Because verse 24 says, they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. Isn't that an incredible truth? You know, when we talk about worship, we talk often about ourselves seeking God. But it's really God who seeks us. In His grace, He seeks us out. And and isn't the Samaritan woman actually an example of this fact? That the Father is seeking through His Son, Jesus, the worship of this woman. Now, there are two components then to worship, to true worship. And Jesus mentions them two times in verses 23 and 24, worship in spirit and in truth. So let's talk first of all about what it means to worship in spirit. How to worship in spirit. I think the context here helps us. When the question was implied in verse 20, you Jews worship in Jerusalem, we worship here on this mountain, she's implying which is the right place. And then in verse 22, Jesus says, you Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. Ignorant worship. We Jews, we worship what we know. Our worship is filled with truth. Now in that contrast between the two, we get an understanding of what it means to worship both in spirit and in truth. Now why why was there this division between the Samaritans and the Jews? Well, it, it went back 700 years before Christ came. 700 years before Christ was when the nation of Israel divided into two. And so you had the northern nation, which retained the name Israel, and the southern nation, which took the name Judah. And this was a tragic time in the history of God's people. Two separate nations divided. Around that time, the Assyrians came in and invaded the northern nation. And when they did, they took away the people of Israel into captivity. Now, not all of them were, take, were taken away. Most of the poor remained behind, but the people of elite and financial status were taken away. And the result was that some Jews remained in the land, but then what the Assyrians did, and the, the Babylonians did the same thing a hundred years later, they would then send in the pagan peoples that they had conquered from other lands to intermingle with the Jews who were in the land. And the result was that over time, the Jews intermarried with these pagan people. And so the Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people. If you go back to the first part of chapter 4, it tells us in verse verse 9, or sorry, verse 6, that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. They did not want to associate with them at all. Because what happened through intermarriage was that over time, the pure and the true religion of the Jews became a hybrid religion. That the pagans added their customs and their rituals to Jewish worship. And so it was a syncretistic way of worshiping God. It was a hybrid religion. They had their own priesthood. They had had and offered sacrifices just the way the Jews did. They followed, as it were, what the Old Testament law told them to do. 
But they only had the first five books of the Bible. They only had the books that were written by Moses. It was only Moses who was, for them, a recognized prophet. So the result was that all of the historical books that were written later, all the way from Joshua, Judges, the Chronicles, Samuel, the Kings, and the poetic books of the Psalms and Proverbs, and then all of the books of the prophets, these were not recognized by them. So they, as it were, they had a limited revelation from God. They had limited truth. Whatever the first five books of the Bible told them about God was what they believed, but the further revelation that was given through the prophets and others, they had no knowledge of. And so when the Jews came back from captivity in Babylon for 70 years, the Samaritans wanted to help them to, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, but the Jews rejected them. And so the Samaritans went off to this mountain called Gerizim, and there they worshiped God, and, and their worship was characterized by spirit. It was enthusiastic. It was, it was emotional. It was exuberant. It was expressive. It was ecstatic worship. But as Jesus says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. For all of the excitement in their worship, there was ignorance of God. Their worship was not informed by truth. The Jews, we worship what we know. And Jesus then adds, for salvation is from the Jews. It's through Israel that salvation comes to the world, is what Jesus was saying. And so Israel was given a complete and a full knowledge of the truth through the prophets who came after the writings of Moses. The revelation they had from God was total and complete, but, but as Jesus said, in spite of the fact that they had the truth of God, they only honored God with their lips. Their hearts were far from God. Their worship was in vain. So they worshiped in truth, but not in spirit. Now to summarize it then in a simplistic way, the Samaritans had all the spirit in worship, and the Jews had all the truth in worship, but there was, for the Samaritans, it was void of truth, and for the Jews, it was void of spirit. Don't we see that today in so many different ways? I, I have in my possession to this day a small booklet written by A.W. Tozer entitled, Worship, the Missing Jewel of the Evangelical Church. And it's a it's a compact version of three sermons that A.W. Tozer delivered in 1961 to the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada. And in that little book, he, he described the worship of that day. We're going back 60, 70 years now. And he, he described how, how everything was true. It was all in accordance with what the Bible says. But it lacked spirit. It lacked enthusiasm. It lacked expression. Of course, shortly after that, the charismatic movement broke in upon the, upon the church, largely because that the church had, had, it was given over to orthodoxy, but, 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 but there was no life in it. And so worship became exuberant again, but, and I'm speaking in a general sense here, but not with a strong emphasis on what the Scriptures say. And so there are other churches today where the Bible is central, the truth is explained, 
But there's a barrenness, a, a lifelessness, a powerlessness, where the worship is just cerebral and not from the heart. This is what Jesus is addressing here. Now, some think when Jesus said we should worship in spirit that he's referring to the Holy Spirit. But I believe he's actually referring to our spirits, that non-material part of us, to our soul. We're to worship in spirit. We're to worship with our soul. David said in Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In Psalm 45, he says, as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul longs and pants after you, the living God. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. All that is within me, that non-material part of me, that our spirits are to be engaged in motions and mind and will. Let me ask you today, as you, as you have worshipped God today, has your soul been involved? Or are you just going through the motions? So how then do we worship in spirit? Well, we worship, in order to worship in spirit, we have to, evolve, have to first of all, we must be, be spiritually alive. Interestingly, in the chapter before chapter 4, John chapter 3, Jesus has another different conversation, not with a sexually broken woman, but with a righteously moral religious man. And both of them are sinners and in, in, in need. She was a law-breaking sinner. He was a law-keeping sinner. But still separated from God. And Jesus said to the religious man that you must be born again. That you must be born of the Spirit. And He connected the Spirit of God to our spirit when He said that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, gives birth to Spirit. Gives birth to Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the one who quickens our dead spirit. Our soul, which is dead in trespasses and sins, it's the Holy Spirit who gives life to our dead spirit. And that's what enables us to become true worshipers of the living God when we're born of the Spirit, made alive by the Spirit. And that's exactly what Jesus was talking to the woman about when, when He said, can I have some water that you're drawing from the well? And, and, and she, she said, sure. And Jesus said, the water that I give you is different than this water. The water that I give you is living water, and it will well up to eternal life. And later in John 7, Jesus said that he who believes in him, out of his or her innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And he was speaking about the Holy Spirit. Do you, do you have trouble worshiping God? When you come here on a Sunday morning, when you, when you attempt to worship, do you find all kinds of hindrances in your way? Do you find that even within yourself, you're unable to really worship and to do what you see the others around you doing? It would be an important question to ask yourself. Am I really truly born of the Holy Spirit? We must be spiritually alive. We must also be spiritually assisted. Jesus said in John chapter 15 that without Him we can do nothing. The psalmist Asaph writes in Psalm 80, revive us, O Lord, and then we will call on Your name. 
We, we need to be spiritually assisted to call on God's name to worship Him. You remember that passage in Romans 8 where, where Paul is talking about prayer and he says that sometimes we can't even find the words to express ourselves in prayer. But the Holy Spirit, He intercedes for us. He come along, comes alongside us, as it were, and He enables us to, to express ourselves to God in words which cannot be uttered. In Philippians 3, Paul says that you and I, if we're true believers, we are the circumcision. The true circumcision. And we worship God by the Spirit of God. There's an enabling, an assistance that comes from the Holy Spirit. And we need the Holy Spirit to prompt us and to motivate us and to move our hearts in worship. We must seek His enabling. Personally, we must do, do, do this. I appreciated so much this morning that at one point, just before worship started, there was a, a moment of silence where each of us could pray. Personally, we, we want our hearts to be gripped by our, our conscious dependence upon the Lord even to worship Him. And in prayer, to, 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 to express, as it were, the discipline of seeking His help. And corporately, we need to do this also. I've been to places where, where prayer is such a priority in the church. You enter the place and immediately the, the whole building is electrified by the presence and the power of the glory of God. Are you doing this when you gather to worship? Asking God the Spirit for the assistance that you need to glorify the Lord. And the third thing that we must have to worship in spirit is we must be spiritually active. And what do I mean by that? You remember in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul says that you and I are to work out our own salvation. Now, salvation is given to us by God in grace. But we're to work it out. In other words, there is a sense in which we cooperate with God so that the salvation He gave to us by grace we doing nothing to earn it or to deserve it, but working with God the Spirit. We're working it out so that we will become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, which is, of course, ultimately the goal of Him saving us. And then he says, it is God who works in you. So I'm to work this out, but it is God who works in me. One preacher of the past said the divine energy of the Spirit and the human activity of the saint are concurrent realities. And so you and I are to come before God in worship with a, with a conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit as we cry out to our Father to enable us. But do we just then sit back and wait for something mystical or spiritual to happen to us? No, we become active. And we will to engage with God. And I'm going to return to this point in a few minutes at the end of this worship because I think it is a very important truth that we need to understand and to practice when we worship God. So let's go now to worship in truth. Jesus says in verse 24, the true worshipers will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So what is worship in truth? Well, there are many who look at this passage and, and, and believe that Jesus is speaking of the 
fact that when we come to worship God, we need to come in truth in that we come sincerely before God. We don't come as hypocrites before, before Him. And there is truth in that. When we come to the Lord, we, we should come sincerely before the Lord. Psalm 145 says, the Lord is near all who call on Him in truth. In other words, who call on Him with sincerity of heart. David said in Psalm 24, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Only the one who has clean hands, who has a pure heart. One of the more modern hymns that has been written by Mark Matt Redman goes like this, I will offer up my life in spirit and truth, pouring out the oil of love as my worship to you. In surrender I must give my every part. Lord, receive the sacrifice of a broken heart. Now the lyrics to the song are actually good. And it's a singable song, and I'm sure you have sung it here before. But when Redmond writes these line, this, these, this first line, I will offer up my life in spirit and in truth, it's clear from what he's writing in the rest of the lyric that he's understanding in spirit and in truth to be sincerely. And he misses what Jesus is saying here. The context is the Samaritans don't worship what they don't know. The Jews worship what they know. In other words, the Jews have truth. The Jews have the revelation of God in its entirety. They have the totality of what God has said about Himself in the Old Testament writings. And that's how John uses the word truth throughout his gospel. In John 17, Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them. My, my children, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And when Jesus referred to Himself in John 14, He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when we worship in spirit, that is that subjective part of us, that inward part of us. But Jesus binds the inward part of our worship by an objective factor of external, the external framework of truth about God. So that true worship involves a heartfelt response to God's truth. God's truth to God revealed in the written Word of God and in the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ. We are to be guided by the written Word of God and guided by the incarnate Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me take just a moment to talk then about being guided in our worship by the written Word of God. What I mean by that is what I've already alluded to. We are to worship God within the totality of what God has revealed about Himself in Scripture. The importance of the written Word of God. See, our minds are to be active then, thinking about God. Our minds are to be surveying the truth that we know about God as revealed in Scripture to us. The character of God, the greatness of God in order to make sure that our worship is accurate. So, for example, if you, if you have a concept of God in your mind, and your concept of God is that God is like pure law, God is pure justice, like God is pure holiness, 
and that's the only truth you have about God in your mind, then you will never be able to worship God acceptably. You'll you'll never be able to really truly offer true worship because your your view of God is, is lopsided. Your worship will be tainted because of your view of God. Not that your view of God is wrong, but you only have half the truth. Conversely, if, you're, if in your mind God is, God is just all love and, and God is just kind and God is tender, but there's no law or holiness or justice in God, then your worship will be tainted in a way in which God, you, you will worship God, can I be frank, flippantly. And He will just be like your buddy, someone to whom you are not accountable. Someone to whom you do not have to answer. There will be no reverence in your worship if God is purely love and kind and tender. And to be really frank, you will never come to God through Jesus Christ who redeems us from our sin and sets us free from condemnation. If we reject or neglect or pervert certain truths of God, then our worship will not be true. It will not be acceptable to God. If the God you worship is not a God who has manifest Himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then that is not true worship. If, if your worship of Jesus is one of, well, yeah, Jesus is God, but he was, like, He's a created God, He's not God from all eternity past. There was a moment in time when the Father created Jesus. If that's your view of Jesus, then then your worship will not be true. If if your view of the Father is that, you know, know, God's just the Father of everyone, but, but He is not uniquely the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then our worship is not acceptable to Him. It's not true. Or if you add to worship something the Bible does not warrant or command, then that will not be acceptable worship. In the Ten Commandments we read, there, you shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself an image of, of anything in heaven or on earth or under the earth. You shouldn't make it. You shouldn't serve it. You shouldn't bow down to it. You shouldn't worship it. Pastor Steve mentioned that Andrea and I were were missionaries overseas. And we have seen this. We have seen people worshiping, as it were, in spirit, enthusiastically, with tears coming down their face, bowing before an image of what they believe to be the true and living God. It is not true worship. And that is why the Bible is so important to our worship. You see, worship is not just an emotional exercise that we use with with God words that induce certain feelings in our heart. No. Worship is a response to God that is built on the truth of what God has revealed about Himself in Scripture to us. And this is the reason why Bible reading and Bible preaching is 
indispensable to true worship because it is the Bible that helps us to focus our minds on the character of God. And it is preaching that opens up our minds to facets of the glory of God. And it contributes to the flow of our worship. A flow of worship from our hearts. I love what the late Dr. John Stott said, my favorite author. He wrote these words. Word and worship belong indissolubly to each other. All worship is an intelligent and loving response to the revelation of God because it is the adoration of His name. Therefore, acceptable worship is impossible without preaching. For preaching is making known the name of the Lord and worship is praising the name of the Lord made known. Far from being an alien intrusion into worship, the reading and preaching of the Word are actually indispensable to it. The two cannot be divorced. Indeed, it is their unnatural divorce which accounts for the low level of so much contemporary worship. Our knowledge is poor because our knowledge of God is poor. Or sorry, our worship is poor because our knowledge of God is poor. And our knowledge of God is poor because our preaching is poor. But when the Word of God is expounded in its fullness and the congregation begin to glimpse the glory of the living God, they bow down in solemn awe and joyful wonder before His throne. It is preaching which accomplishes this. The proclamation of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. That is why preaching is unique and irreplaceable. And you need to thank God that you have a pastor and pastors who preach the Word of God in its entirety without compromise. Because of this, you are being enabled by God the Spirit to offer worship in spirit and in truth. Not only guided by the written Word of God should our worship be, but also guided by the incarnate Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And if you look with me at verse 23, that seems to be the dominant emphasis in this passage. Yet a time is coming and has now come, Jesus says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now when Jesus refers to the time that is coming and has now come, He is actually referring to Himself. He is referring to this new era that He ushers in, or ushered in. Because Jesus Christ is the final revelation of God. The book of Hebrews is all about worship. About acceptable worship. And the book of Hebrews begins with these words, in the past, God revealed Himself in many different ways through the prophets. And then he adds this, but in these last days, He has revealed Himself to us in His Son. In His Son. The incarnate Word of God. The time is coming, Jesus adds, and has now come. In these last days, God has revealed Himself to us through His Son. In other words, this question that was on the heart of this sinful woman where is the right place to worship? 
The question is answered in Jesus' words because the place is Jesus. She's thinking of a temple that was built on their mountain. And Jesus is thinking of a temple in Jerusalem. And this is what they're speaking about. But Jesus directs her now to understand that the place isn't Gerizim. The place isn't Jerusalem. The place isn't a temple here or a temple there. That Jesus Christ Himself is that temple. The place of worship, the where of worship, the temple for worship is Jesus. Remember in John 2, Jesus said to the Jews, "If you this temple, they were looking at the temple, and, and Jesus said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. And He was speaking about the temple of His body. He is the new temple. He is the new meeting place. On one occasion, Matthew tells us that Jesus was conversing with the Jews about different things, and they were challenging Him about the Sabbath day and about His disciples breaking the law. And Jesus referred to them the story where David with his, his band of men went into the temple and they took from the bread that was in the temple that was reserved only for the priests and they ate from it. And Jesus was using that as a justification for what they were doing. And Jesus added these words, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. He was referring to Himself that Jesus takes the place of the temple. And brothers and sisters in Christ, as you read the book of Hebrews through, it's about the temple, the tabernacle. It's about the priesthood. It's about the sacrifices of blood. And the writer to the Hebrews goes out of his way to tell us that all of those sacrifices of the past that occurred in the tabernacle, that occurred in the temple, were nothing more than types and copies, and shadows of the true realities. Of the true worship and the substantial worship of a true temple and a true priesthood and a true sacrifice. And that sacrifice was Jesus Christ. And the key new truth is that worship happens now through Jesus because He has poured out His blood for the forgiveness of sins. He has given His life to redeem sinners. He has opened a way for you and I as sinners to be reconciled to God. He is the temple where we can gather and be reconciled to God. He is the temple where which we can be reconciled and the Father can find us as He seeks us out. And the Samaritan woman was a picture of this. For the Father was seeking this woman through Jesus Worship in truth is worship through Jesus, and it is worship of Jesus. Now I want to go to two final things that I'd like to say to you today. You can call them takeaway points or applications. I'd like to now draw all of what I've given you in teaching this morning into something now that I hope will be applicable to all of us today. First of all, I want to talk about bringing spirit and truth together. We are to worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, we, are, we need to bring our experience of worship into conformity with, with what is true about God and to let our spirits be authentically awakened and moved by that truth. I talked to you earlier in this message about being spiritually alive, 
spiritually assisted, and spiritually active. I want to talk to you now about what it means to be spiritually active in worship. And the first thing is this. Every one of us, when we gather corporately to worship or in your private times of worship, we need to rouse our souls. Do you understand what I'm saying? We need to wake up. We need, as a word, to give ourselves a slap in the face in terms of what it means to worship God. We need to rouse our souls. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my what? soul. Now, what is David doing when he says this? We sang it today, Bless the Lord, O my soul. What are we actually doing when we say, Bless the Lord, O my soul? We're talking to ourselves. David was talking to himself. David recognized a sluggishness in his heart. David recognized how slow his heart was. David recognized how sinful he was. He recognized how difficult it is for us in our flesh, in our sin nature, to engage with God. In Psalm 42, he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? We need to talk to ourselves. Why are you disturbed within me? David is rousing himself. He's saying, this is, this, it shouldn't be like this. But it is, and so I have to wake up as it were. And he says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him. We need to wake up. It is, so to speak, we need a trip to Tim's for a cup of coffee. Spiritual coffee, as it were. In Psalm 57, David says, awake my soul. And I don't know about you, but there are times where I really don't feel like it. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like worshiping God. Sometimes I'd rather just stay home and watch online. But even when David didn't feel like it, he, he roused his soul. You remember when his son died? What did David do when his son, his son died? What do so many do when... When tragedy comes upon us, we go away from the house of God. We move away from worship. God, as it were, becomes our enemy at that point in time. But what did David do? We read in 2 Samuel 12 that he went immediately into the temple. First of all, he bathed himself. He washed himself. And then he went into the temple and he worshipped God in his grief. We need to rouse our souls. Secondly, the reason why we need to rouse our souls is because we need to repent of a divided heart. Isn't this our greatest burden? That our flesh rebels against the living God. In Psalm 86, David said, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart, he said, that I may fear your name. We don't want to dishonor God with half-hearted worship. And so again, David gives us the example in Psalm 139 when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there's any offensive way in me. And then Psalm 108, he was able to say, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make music with all my soul. We need to rouse our souls. We need to repent of our divided hearts. And the third thing is that we need to focus our thoughts on truths about the triune God. And this is where the discipline of our minds comes into play. This is where we must be spiritually active. 
we must contemplate the Lord Himself, His person. Great is the Lord. His works. Forget not all His benefits, David said. He forgives your sins. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns me with love and compassion. This means we have to deliberately turn our minds from the distractions of the world and and we have to focus on the majesty and the glory and the power the grace and the mercy and the faithfulness of God. We have to make a choice to, to contemplate the character of God. And even before worship, sometimes to, to, to push aside the clutter of conversation with friends that we might prepare our hearts. And if we find we're unable to do that on a Sunday morning, then surely Saturday night would be a time where this would happen before we meet to worship God with His people. And when we sing then, to, to focus our truth, to, to give our minds to singing. You know, you, you sang today, and I wrote this down as you were singing. You sang today, and, and when you sang, you sang one song which I think captures this truth, and I'll mention a couple of others. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And what's the next line? And wonder. What's that? That's the mind engaged. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and I wonder how He could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. That's the mind engaging with the truth that God in Christ loves us in spite of our sin. And when I think That God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. Then, then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee, how great Thou art, How great Thou art. When I survey, there's the mind. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Do you know what happens when you rouse your soul? Do you know what happens when you repent of a dividing, divided heart? Do you know what happens when you, when you focus your thoughts on the living God? You will find eventually your spirit is going to catch up with your voice. For when you begin to sing these things and say these things, when I think that God is son not sparing, when your mind is engaged, then the soul catches up with your voice. And as we focus on the character of God, the greatness of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our souls rise up in worship. This is how we bring spirit and truth together in worship. And finally, we need to become true worshipers of the living God. The Samaritan woman, as I've already said, is an example of this. A broken human being. 
But she knew that somehow the answer to her brokenness was in the living God. She was confused about the place. She was confused about having a full revelation of this God. But she knew that the answer was in God. And as Jesus told her, the Father is seeking for you to become a true worshiper. And her first act of worship was to embrace Jesus Christ. And she believed in Him. And she went on to tell others about Him. Because when she believed in Jesus, she actually entered into the temple, Jesus. And she worshipped Him. And her life was transformed. Father in heaven, thank You for the truths that we've considered together this morning. I pray that all of us will be able to practice the application of this message, to rouse our souls, to repent of our divided hearts, and to focus our thoughts on the living God so that our spirits will be fully engaged in responding to Your truth in true worship. And for any here today who have never put their faith and trust in Christ and become a true worshiper of Him, I pray today would be the day when they turn from darkness to light. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.